0: Welcome to Parkview. Glad to have you here. If you haven't figured out by now, we're doing life on mission because I like the author. <laughs> we're going to talk about 40 days of mission. Uh, we're going to do this together. And uh, anyway, there's something about 40 days doing this together just really makes it fun. And that's why we wrote the program. And really, our staff was involved in this in a big way altogether. But I, I got to ask you to start out with this question. Do you ever wonder what you are here for? Do you wonder what your mission is? Do you, do you Don't you think we ought to figure it out? I mean, I'm gonna be a grandpa in like three or four weeks. Do you know how weird that is? I don't feel I don't feel like old enough to be a grandpa. And you know what I mean, grandpas. I mean, this—it's not—it just feels weird to me. And the older I get, the more, the, the faster I realize life is going by. I was thinking this week about the, you know, the little rant that Billy Crystal goes on in in City Slickers when he's depressed and he's talking to the young people in this classroom, and he's like, "Enjoy your life at this stage, young people. You have lots of choices. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything. When you're in your 20s, you—you you know, they're just a blur. When you're in your 30s, you raise your family, you—you you make a little money, yeah." You, you ask yourself, what happened in my 20s? You get to your 40s and you grow a little pot belly and you get a little second chin and the music starts to become too loud and one of your high school girlfriends because of grandma. your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. your 60s, you have a major surgery. Music is still too loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anymore. In your 70s, you and the wife, you move to Fort Lauderdale, you retire, you start eating dinner at 2 o'clock and lunch around 10 o'clock and breakfast the night before. And you spend all your time wandering around the mall looking for the ultimate in soft yogurt and asking, how come the kids don't call? By your 80s, you've had a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse your wife can't stand but who you call mama. Any questions? (laughs) It goes by that fast, doesn't it? I mean, it really is amazing. What, so what am I supposed to do while I'm here? What is my mission? Rick Warren asks, why doesn't God take you to heaven the minute you become a believer? Do you ever think about that? Well, why doesn't he? I mean, there's no reason not to be in heaven, right? We all want to be there. It's going to be perfect. Heaven is perfect. What do we still have on earth? We still have sin. Really, everything, that, almost everything that you can do here, you could do in heaven, but it'll be perfect. You can sing in heaven. You can love God in heaven. You can pray in heaven. Whatever you want to do in heaven, there's only two things, Rick says, that you can't do in heaven that you can do on earth. Sin and tell people the good news about Jesus. Everybody's going to know Jesus then, and there won't be any sin. And then he asks the, you know, rhetorical question, what do you think God left you here to do? Why are you alive? To share the good news. That's why you're alive. The only reason that your heart is still beating after you become a believer is because you've got a mission. And if somebody hadn't had a mission and shared it with you, you wouldn't be where you're at. And now we need to share it with somebody else. And as soon as I mention that, I know your mind goes back to the ultimate search for the ultimate soft yogurt. Because you don't want to talk about this. I know, I know. It sounds like something uncomfortable. Am I going to have to wear a robe and go to the airport and pass out tracks? Am I going to have to knock on people's doors and say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? No, please put all of that out of your mind for the next six weeks. Okay, please put that out of your mind and just have an open mind to the fact that when you do what God wants and you do it in the way that he wants, it will be the most fulfilling thing you've ever done. Being on mission with God, finding your purpose and doing what God wants you to do is going to be the most rewarding thing that you've ever done. Let me tell you what we need to do over the next six weeks, all right? Um, just, just a few things I want to I make sure that you know. Okay, first of all, be here. All of these are important. There are five action steps that I will unpack. I'll be preaching all of them. I'm going to unpack all five action steps in the next five weeks, and you don't want to miss them because they're kind of in order of what I think you ought to be doing. All right, so so be here. Make an effort to that. Number two, read the book. You can get it on Kindle. You can, you know, get it out here, whatever. You can buy from Amazon. It's it's like I know you guys. I know most the average guy does not ever read a book after he gets out of school high school or college. That's the truth. They don't read, guys don't read. Listen, this is me. This is my sarcasm, my running the cubs down, my all the things that I do. This is, this is me. It's simple to read. This is not Lord of the Rings, okay? You're going to be able to get this, I promise you. It's a pretty simple read. Number three, start your own group. Get the DVD, again, it's just me, all right? It's not scary, it's not, it's not somebody else, it's me doing 12 to 15 minutes of teaching on each week. Get together with a, a group of friends, get some people together. Maybe there's some people at work, you know, you can say, hey, our church is doing this mission thing, why don't you, why don't you join me and do it? Because you need the community around you. We'll talk about that along the way, but, but do this mission thing together, get a group. It doesn't have to be people you don't know, just get a group together. Number four, involve your family. All right, how about this? Um, how, about, how about, like, okay, first of all, how about have dinner together, okay? You know, like not McDonald's on the way to soccer place, You know, but, but, but have dinner together, actually. And, and how about if you watch the DVD, like 15 minutes before, you know, the meal, and then you sat around at the table, and you and your family just went through this together. Don't you want your family to be on mission with you together? I mean, it could be, could be life-changing for your kids, life-changing for your family. Number five, be open to how God is going to speak to you. I know mean, a lot of you grew up in a background where you just, you know, you, like, you had your little church thing and God didn't really do a lot of communicating to you directly. I want to tell you something. He's still there and the Holy Spirit still works through us and what's going to happen is there's, if, if you will do this, there are going to be some opportunities where God's just going to kind of open the door. He's going to nudge you a little bit and he's going to say, that person right there. That neighbor, that guy in that cubicle, that person right there, that's your mission. Be open to it, because God knows what's going on, and God is going to prepare the way. Like we talked about with Jonah, God's going to do that, and it's going to be, you know, stepping out in faith, but God's going to do that. I really believe that if our church can wrap our head around this for 40 days, it could transform our church. And even more importantly, I think uh, the reason that I wrote this and we worked on this together as a church is so that other churches could be transformed as well. There's a, there's a church in Tucson that's already in week four. They wanted to be ahead of us. There are churches all around the country that are piloting with this with us, and then hopefully more of them are going to pick it up and do it. That's really what we want to have happen is for this to transform churches. But it's going to take everybody's involvement. My friend Rick Russo talks about uh, Ephesians 2. It's this great verse in the Bible that says, you know, by grace you are saved. And those of us who have been believers for a long time and know the Bible, we love that verse. You're, you're saved by grace. I'm not saved by works because then I'd be able to boast. That's, that's one of the most popular verses to memorize in the Bible, saved by grace. But, but he said we forget that the rest of that verse says that we've been saved by grace but you are, the next part of this verse says, you are God's workmanship created in advance for something to happen, for, God, for what God's already prepared in advance for you to do. And he sums it up like this. This is part of the deal, that you are saved from something for something. You're saved from something, our sin, for something, the mission. God has something that he has prepared in advance for you to do. He also sent me this picture of a cemetery that he took in Missouri this week. And, and so don't wait until it's that time, okay? Kind of awkward. Um, donations needed. You know, before you get to the point where you donate your body to the grave, wouldn't it be great to find your mission? Well, what is it? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul said. I like the message on this one. The most important thing in my life is that I complete my mission. What is it? The work that the Lord Jesus gave me to do. Well, what is it? To tell people the good news about God's grace. That's the mission. That's Paul's mission. It's your mission. It's our mission. Well, well, are you sure it's my mission? Yeah, because Jesus said it this way. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're going to talk about witnesses. That's the difference between, and maybe if you've been in church and you thought that you were supposed to be God's defense attorney, or the judge, or the prosecutor. No, you're just a witness. That's all you've got to do, so don't worry about all that other stuff. And where? Where are you supposed to be a witness? Well, uttermost parts of the earth. That's great. Getting ready to do a big project in Africa. I'm in LA this week to work on our big Africa project, right? Great. Judea, Samaria. Is that... The rest of the world. I mean, the, the, the rest of the United States, there's places that we're working all over, starting a safe house, all those kinds of things. That's our Judea and Samaria. But don't forget Jerusalem. Where were these people? They were in Jerusalem. That's where you start, that's where the mission begins. Do you understand that? Jesus said the most important thing in the world there's two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. He said, that's it. The entire Bible could be summed up in this one really simple thing. Love dad and take care of his kids. Right? And by the way, his kids live next door. His kids are all around us. Do you see them? America now makes up one of the largest mission fields in the world. Third or fourth largest mission field in the world. In the old days, we used to send missionaries out everybody, every place else. Now they're coming to us. The Christianity is growing like crazy in China, where it's been oppressed. It's growing like crazy in the continent of Africa. It's growing like crazy in Asia. It's growing crazy everywhere except back here. 195 million Americans... That's by far the most uh, group of Americans are unchurched. A lot of them would say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, but they don't have any religious affiliation. As a matter of fact, the the number of people in the US who have no religious worldview whatsoever has gone from 15% in 1950 to 60% in 2010. The fastest growing group of people in the United States of America are the people that don't believe in any kind of religion. We live in a mission field. We just don't act like it. So so, I... I read read a lot of church books, but I read business books too. Because, you know, one way or another, I want to understand leadership. And one of my favorite writers, and if if you're in business, you understand this, Peter Drucker, father of American business, just a fantastic writer. And, And somebody asked him one time, okay, Peter, what is the most important ingredient to a successful business? And he summed it up really simple. Every day, you have to ask yourself two questions. What business are we in? and how's business? Isn't that brilliant? I mean, it really is that simple. What business are we in and how's business? What's the problem with that? Well, a lot of people forget what they're supposed to do. They forget what their business is. Have you seen any of the sites on the internet? You know, you only had one job, putting people's mistakes up on the internet. I love it so much, there's so many great ones. Let me just show you a few of them. You only had one job. Put the Midfield logo at Midfield. Only one job. How about this? You only had one job. Even, even, you know, a fifth grader knows that's not Asia, right? You only had one job. Back to school knives is probably not what we're going for here. Okay? And not a good idea. Well, you only had one job. Well, he parked his car there. What was I supposed to do, right? You only had one job. Put his name here. Only one job. That's all you had to do. And it's so funny to laugh at that. But when I think about the church, when I think about the church in the United States of America, especially, you know what? I feel like we're like that. We've forgotten what our one job is. What business are we in? We're in the witness business. That's what business we're in. How's business? I started the book Life on Mission this way. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. Those of you who are old enough know that's the classic line from Mission Impossible and they even use it again in the Tom Cruise remakes. I mean, it, it, it's classic, right? Your mission, should you choose to accept it and, and, and you would watch as the, you know, back in my day, the little tape recorder would, you know, play the mission out and then it would self-destruct so nobody else could go on the mission because that agent was the only one assigned to that mission. Something to that, right? You know what never happened? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I never saw an episode of Mission Impossible where the agent said, "Eh, "I'm not going to do that one. I'm not feeling it today. I'm going surfing." You know, that that just never happened. Because the presupposition is that if you are an agent, you're going to take the mission. If you want a government job where you sit around and do nothing all day, you can work for the DMV or several other places, I could suggest, right? But, but but if you work for the government and you're supposed to go and you're supposed to be an agent, you go on mission. That's what you do. Jesus said the mission is to seek and save the lost. I'm, I'm gonna give you a million different ways that Jesus told us that we're in the witness business to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said to his disciples the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into the harvest field We need workers Let me point out to you from there that the first thing we need to do is pray If you've been following along in life on mission You know that I put prayer as the last action step And I only did that because I wanted to make sure you knew what to pray for before we got there But we're not going to wait to pray Tomorrow night, Monday night, at the Orlando campus, we're having a big prayer night. Seven o'clock. We want you to come out. You won't have to do anything weird. You know, there's no snakes. There's not going to be anything weird going on. Okay. Have you heard that new Kenny Chesney song? It's crazy. Um, uh, pass the Lord and uh, praise the Lord and pass the copperhead. I'm sorry. I just admitted I was listening to Kenny Chesney. Uh, my Adderall's wearing off. Here's what I want you to understand. Okay. You won't have to do anything weird. You won't have to. You won't have to do anything weird for an hour. We're just gonna pray. And I want to invite you to come and join us tomorrow night, 7 o'clock. Really, really simple. Because that's where we start. Now let me get back to that. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. Right? If the harvest was plentiful 2,000 years ago, what do you think it is now? Here's a, here's a graph of the timeline, okay? This yellow band here represents the time we live on. and 50 years, both sides of Y2K, we're just going to call that our little piece of history right here, okay? This is the timeline, okay? So here's Jesus back here. Here's us here. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful here. Now let me show you the graph of the human population. Look at this. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful back here. What happens along the way? There's a lot of plagues. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of death, a lot, a lot of wars. And the population doesn't really grow for thousands and thousands of years until right before we all come into our little yellow band, the population of human history goes through the roof. It goes from millions to billions. So what should that tell you about the harvest? If the harvest is plentiful here, what do you think Jesus would say if he was right here today? He would say, are you kidding me? Maybe the follow-up question to why am I alive is why am I alive now? That's what I keep coming back to. Why did God put me here? In 2014, in this period of human history, why did he do that? Here's what I said in the book. I think the people of... The world are more ready to receive the good news than we are ready to give it, and this needs to change. The harvest is plentiful, and we need workers. If the harvest was ripe in Jesus' day, why is there so little harvesting? So you say, well, what business are we in? We're in the witness business. How's business? It's not good. It's not good. It's not good around us. It's not good in the United States of America. Why is that? Is that a Jesus problem? I don't think so. I think it's a church problem. When when you ask the average person, what do you think of Jesus and his love for people who are lost, this would be the picture that they would have in their mind. Well, whether they believe in Jesus as the Son of God or not, they know that Jesus was a, a teacher who cared about people that were far from God so much that he was crucified for it. They know that this is Jesus, but when you ask people, what they think about the church and the church's view towards people that are away from the Father, they would say, well, it's more like this. The scarecrow image, you know, you got your little church barn back there. The scarecrow image is the one that a lot of us grew up with, and I think it's the problem with the church. I think it's the reason why more people, more and more people are having a good view of Jesus, but they're losing that view of the church, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Again, I showed this picture a couple of weeks ago in a Jonah sermon. It's, I kissed a girl, I liked it, and then I went to hell. It's that scarecrow thing. It's that judgmental thing. And, and, and I promised you that I would tell you a story about me being that guy at some point along the way. I'm always going to be honest with you. The, the, the weird part about this story I'm going to tell you is that for, for a brief period of time, like just one evening in Bible college, I was in the holy group. That was the only time in Bible college I was in the holy group. It was like one evening. Usually they were talking about, you know, whether they were going to let me stay in Bible college or not. But one evening I was in the holy group. And this will tell you something else about how old I am. Okay, we picketed an Alice Cooper concert. It wasn't like early Alice Cooper when he was, like, good. This, we're talking Joplin, Missouri, okay? You don't, you, don't, you don't go to Joplin, Missouri if you're a, a headliner. You go to Chicago, right? You're at the United Center. You're Joplin, Missouri when you're on your way down. And for some reason, one of my professors that I really respected got it in his mind that we should go out and, you know, do something about this Alice Cooper thing. And so a bunch of us went out, and you know, the group mentality just go out, and you're yelling at the people in the line, and you know, hey, Alice is supposed to be a girl's name, and he's singing about the devil, and you know, you're going to hell, and they're yelling back at you, saying, Hey crazy Christian, shut up. And I don't remember much about that night, except I was there, and I remember thinking, this is not helping. This is not helping. But that's the church that I grew up in. It was about the things we were against, not the things we were for. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, right? But somewhere along the way, I started to actually study this, and I started to read about the life of Jesus Christ. And you know what I found in here? You can trust me on this if you haven't read it. Jesus never picketed anyone. Jesus was never, ever a scarecrow. Jesus came to invite those people who were far from a relationship with his Father to a relationship with his Father, not just the ones who followed the rules. Ironically, the ones who followed the rules were the scarecrows in Jesus' day, just like they are today the religious people who thought they needed to guard God from the bad birds for some reason. And they were so frustrated by Jesus because Jesus seemed to understand God so well, and yet he was always hanging out with the bad birds. He was always hanging out with Alice Cooper and Katy Perry. Jesus, what are you doing? You're supposed to be picketing those people. But that's not what he did, because that's not who he was. And if you and I are going to be his witness. We can't be either. There's a good chance at redemption for this Alice Cooper story. Alice Cooper is a believer now, uh, really committed Christian, doing a lot of great things in the world. And I've gotten to know his wife, and I have have invited Alice Cooper and his wife to come and do an interview weekend here at Parkview some weekend. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be the end of my story. I think it would be so cool. So pray about that. You write a giant boa constrictor in for Father's Day or something. I don't know. It'll, it'll be awesome. Okay? Here's, here's the thing. The point is this. Jesus said, be my witnesses. He said, compel them to come in. He said, go into all the world and reach and preach the gospel and, and help make disciples. He never said, go stand at the entrance of the church and make sure they're good enough to come in. So is Parkview a scarecrow church? No, we're not. We never will be this is my heart. and get this, right? And I know that we're not. Just a couple of good stories, all right? both from Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve's a big deal for us. We had 20,000 people come uh, to Christmas Eve last year, and um, there are a fun- couple of funny stories. All right? One of them I told, one of them I have. One funny story that I told is um, the cleaning crew coming along afterwards, you know, after one of the services, found, um, it's hard for me to talk about this in mixed company in a really easy way that you won't be in an awkward conversation with your kid later, but it was a, uh, a uh, birth control device in a foil wrapper that you could keep in your pocket, okay? On the floor of the church after a Christmas Eve service. Right? Unopened, but I mean, it was there, you know? And so I started thinking to myself uh, what what in the world could that be doing on the floor after Christmas Eve and all I can think of is that some guy who was you know headed to the to the nightclub or you know hoping you know for a really good Christmas Eve somehow you know had pulled out his wallet or his money out of his pocket to give to buy coats for you know the kids in Humboldt Park that we bought coats for Christmas Eve and, and dropped his in case of emergency on the floor that's all I could figure out is there any other obli- any other obvious you know solution to that? And, you know, I can can only hope that, you know, next year's baby Jesus is not the, you know, the result of last year's Christmas offering. That's all I, that's all I can hope. But, But the question is, does that guy feel welcome at Parkview, or are we scarecrows? Well, obviously he's here. Obviously he's here. The second story was, I had an intern run up to me during one of the Christmas Eve services, and he said, hey, I think somebody's smoking pot in the men's bathroom. like, this is not Colorado. What happened? <laughs> I didn't know whether to be more concerned that somebody was smoking pot in the men's bathroom during Christmas Eve, or that my intern knew what pot smelled like, you know. <laughs> but, but one way or another, that would make a lot of churches uncomfortable, would it not? It would make a lot of Christians uncomfortable. I can tell you one person who it did not make uncomfortable The person who invited them to his birthday party in the first place. He's the one who said when they criticized him for hanging out with those people, hey, wait a minute. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I came for the sinners. How can I not hang out with them? In Luke 15, The scarecrows are griping at Jesus for being around sinners all the time. They're griping at the doctor for being around sick people. And it says, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the the Pharisees and the scarecrows, the teachers of the law, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. How could he do that? So in perfect Jesus fashion, instead of answering them, he tells three stories. Not just one, but three. In Luke chapter 15. Something is lost. Lost is bad. We should do everything possible to find it. There's a lost coin. There's a lost sheep. There's a lost son. The lost coin, the woman sweeps her house until she finds that one coin. She had nine more, but she swept her house. The lost sheep story, the shepherd had 99 more, but he left them vulnerable in the open field, and he went and he found, he gave his entire intention to that one lost sheep because lost is that important to find. The story of the lost son is the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you know the idea. Because of freedom of choice as a human being, this son decided to take his dad's money that he had from an inheritance and go waste it in wild living. And finally, he runs out of money, and he comes home with his tail between his legs in desperation because he has no place else to go. And what does he find when he gets home? A scarecrow? No. A picket line? No. Judgment? No. He finds a loving father who couldn't have been more happy to have his kid home. His kid, the sick kid, the sinner kid, the prodigal kid. He gets him home. And after three stories about the importance of the lost being found, Jesus gets to the punchline. If you've ever read this before, you might not have known what the punchline was. This is it. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Field's a good place for the scarecrow, isn't it? So thankful that the prodigal son didn't come home through that field, aren't you? That's the problem, I think, that happens in the American church a lot, is, is that they come through that field, and there's a scarecrow there, and they never actually get to the loving father. You see what I'm saying? And that word sums it up a lot for me, meanwhile. Meanwhile's not a good word, right? If something good's been going on, and then there's meanwhile, it's not good. That's not going to be a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining one of the old shows or an old cartoon, right? Meanwhile, Batman is about to be lowered into a poisonous vat. Meanwhile, the damsel has been tied to the tracks. Meanwhile, there's something bad getting ready to happen. I have the narrator from Rocky and Bullwinkle in my head. You have to figure it out if you're younger than me, right? That's what's going on. Meanwhile. The problem with the church in America is meanwhile. The problem with the church in the 21st century is meanwhile. Meanwhile, we decided that we would rather, you know, live within the sound of the chapel bell than run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. Meanwhile, we decided that our business was not the witness business. It was the scarecrow business. Meanwhile, we set up scarecrows and picket lines and told everybody how bad they were and how they're going to hell, and we're glad of it. Kind of like the scarecrow in this story. But he answered his father, look. Oh, wait. He came to the house. I'm sorry. When he came near the house, he heard the music and his dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Oh, your brother has come home. I wonder what the servant sounded like when he said that. Don't you? Was it like, "Oh, your brother came home? Or was it, your brother came home. Your father has killed the fatted calf because of him and he is back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. It was like, how could the older brother, how could the scarecrow brother be angry that his lost brother had come home? It seems almost unbelievable, doesn't it? Except when you realize that this is the punchline to Jesus' story to the people who are mad at him for spending all his time with the sick people. The older brother said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeying your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. What about me? But then this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. Sounds like he's a little jealous. Comes home, and you kill the fatted calf for him, right? And there it is. That's the scarecrow problem right there. The scarecrow problem is this. I deserve to be with the father, but you don't. You see what that is? That's what the problem is. It's churches full of people who say, I deserve to be with the Father, but you don't. And I made up a term for it this week. I think we should call it gracism. It's good, isn't it? I like it. It's gracism. I'm a gracist. (laughs) Here's how it works. Well, I read my Bible every day. Sometimes the King James Version, just like Jesus did. I go to church, unless it's hunting season, every, I go to Sunday school, I get up early, I, you know, I do all those things, I say grace at every meal, even at work, I vote Republican, I've been a child of God for a very long period of time, maybe all of my life, my parents helped build this church, I tithe, I give to other projects along the way, and what does that make me? That makes me good, in my mind, that makes me good, okay? I mean, that, that's, I deserve to be in the Father's house because I'm good. Oh, well, sure, yeah, I occasionally look at porn. I'm so far in debt. If I missed a paycheck, I, you know, I I would be bankrupt. I'm completely uninvolved or abusive. Parent slash spouse, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm so envious of my neighbor's new truck. I can't see straight. It's a good thing God can't hear the language I have underneath my breath. And, And by the way, I can't stand those fill in the blank people. But hey, I'm good. And there's no way I should give up my seat There's no way I should give up my parking space. There's no way I should give up my time or my money or the fatted calf for those people. That makes me a gracist. The word and the definition I'm making up to define this exact problem. It's the same thing as racism, gracism, except that gracism is not about the color of your skin. It's about the color of your sin. Jesus told it this way in another passage. He said, two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a scarecrow, and the other a tax collector, a sick kid. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, he's praying, look how much better I am than everybody else because he's a gracist. I fast twice a week, week, I give a tenth of all I get. What does that make me? Good enough to be in the Father's house. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he would not even look up into heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me a sinner. Words of Jesus, I tell you that that man, the tax collector, the sick man, Rather than the other, went home justified before God. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, we're going to have communion in a few minutes. I want to encourage you. When you come around that, that gift of the body and the blood of Jesus, put everything out of your mind that's telling you you're good enough. Beat your breast and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What should the older brother have done? Older brother should have had the younger brother in his mind and love for him in his mind. He should have had the same attitude as his dad kill the cow, get the robe, find the ring. Let's bend over backwards and make sure that this prodigal son gets home. Because this is how the father feels. He loves his kid that much. Here's what Jesus said. I tell you that in the same way, this is in Luke 15, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Why? Because that's our business. What business are we in? That business. More rejoicing. Why? Because lost is bad. Do you understand that? Have you ever lost anything? The the lost coin is going to be lost forever. The lost sheep is possibly going to die. The lost son is going to be separated from, from his family. Lost in our community, lost people around us are going to be separated from God forever. Have you ever lost anyone? Any parents ever lost their kid even for a moment in a mall or someplace? Do you remember that that feeling that you had for just that brief moment when all of a sudden you realize you don't know where your kid is and they might be in danger? That's how God feels about your neighbor. That's how God feels about your coworkers. Do you understand that? We lost our daughter Becca when she was four years old. Our youngest, she was four years old. We were camping on a beach in North Carolina, and we were there with extended family, So the kids were all kind of running back and forth in the beach, and the you know the beach was here, and the campground was here, and there was a sand dune in between, so you couldn't really see back and forth. But we were really close. And Becca was four, cute as a button, little dark-headed thing in a pink Barbie bathing suit. She'd come to the campsite with some of the cousins, and then she decided to wander back by herself over to where we were all at the beach, except she got to the dune and couldn't see where we were and decided to start walking that way. You know that feeling if you've ever had it before. We all realized that nobody knew where Becca was. We went out there. She wasn't out there. She wasn't back here. We knew that she was gone. This is before cell phones, so we immediately alerted the lifeguards and they started alerting each other on their radios, and Denise took off running one way on the beach, and I took off running the other way on the beach, and you guys know I could have beat Usain Bolt in a a race that day. When you have that feeling in your gut, my kid is lost, that's the feeling God has. I ran as fast as I could, I would stop and say, Has anybody seen a, a cute little brunette four year old in a Barbie bathing suit? Nobody had. Anybody that I asked, they hadn't seen her. So I'm hoping, I'm praying, oh maybe she's back up with her mom. She must be up the other way. Everything's gotta be okay. You tell yourself that. Half a mile down the down the beach, there she was. Do you know what that feeling's like? More rejoicing in heaven. Over one lost sinner who comes home to 99 persons who don't need to repent. I called out to her, she turned and looked at me and broke down crying. Why? Because she knew she was lost. They always know they're lost. Then I had another problem I had no way to tell her mom that she was safe. I knew that her mom needed the same feeling that I had. So I hoisted Becca up on my shoulders and I ran just as fast back the other way so that I could tell Denise that her lost child was home. Friends, that's our mission. That's our business. That's what business we're in. It's taking those kids back to their father who loves them and can't wait until they get home. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to as a church, and that's your mission. So over the next five weeks, we're going to tell you how to do that, and it's going to be way simpler than you think. This is my creed. It was written by an Anglican priest named Samuel Shoemaker back in the 50s. Um, he was one of the guys that helped start AA. So he was one of those guys that had a heart for the people that were far from God. And he saw the church and how much the church wasn't doing anything about those who were far from God. And so he wrote this. It became his creed and it has now become mine. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The the door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which people walk when they find God. There's no use in my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside. And they, as well as I, need to know where the door is. All that so many ever find is a wall. They creep along a wall where the door ought to be, like blind people with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing that there must be a door, yet they don't find it so I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find the door. It's the door to God. The most important thing anybody can do is to take a hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch that only clicks and opens to a person's own touch. People die outside that door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. They die for want of what is within their grasp and they live on the other side of it just because they have not found it. So nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and up into the spacious attics. It's a vast, roomy house where God is. Go into the deepest of hidden casements of withdrawal and sainthood and silence. Some must inhabit those inner rooms and know the heights and the depths of God and call out to us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes I venture in a little farther. But my place seems to be closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget what it was like before they got in so they would be able to help the people who have not yet found the door. You can go in too deeply and stay in too long and forget the people outside the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place, near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from people as to not hear them And remember that they are there too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I'm intended to put on the latch. So I will stand by the door and I will wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. So I stand by the door.